Date with a Debut is a Words and Nerds and Breathe Art podcast co-production, recorded on a Wagbacool country. And I pay my respects to all elders past and present, and extend that to any First Nations people tuning in. Always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. On with the show. I think as a writer, sometimes you don't quite know what you're writing until you're finished with it. When I initially had the idea for Nightbirds, I certainly wasn't thinking to myself, I want to write a book about everything that's wrong with patriarchy and how we (laughs) should dismantle it and build something better. I'm Nick Wasilia, former host of Tell Me What to Read, author of When Men Cry, and I'm continuing my mini-series with Words and Nerds, shining a light on debut novelists and their journey to publication. If you're looking for a new book to devour, this is the place to be. You're looking for writing inspiration, this is the place to be. This is Date with a Debut, because nothing hits you like a first impression. And for our next episode in this series, I'm joined by Kate J. Armstrong, former high school teacher, non-fiction book editor, originally from Virginia over stateside. She's the host of many podcasts, including the Explorers mm. podcast. And we're going to talk about her novel, Nightbirds, which we'll be discussing today, published by Alan and Unwin. Um, I haven't dived into the world of YA yet on this podcast, so I'm keen as a bean for this chat. Kate, welcome. Thank you so much, Nick. I'm very excited that uh, your first YA on the show is uh, Lowell Me and my my book about magical girls, and I'm thrilled to be here. You're very, very welcome. And I will also just start saying, I know that for podcast purposes, it's only audio, but this cover's beautiful, by the way. Isn't it? It is so gorgeous. <laughs> I have so Thank many you. questions, so many amazing YA books out there, and I love it. And it's one of those cases where if you go judge a book by its cover, this is a great first impression. In typical date fashion, I've touched on it a little bit in our intro, but start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came on this writing journey that became Nightbirds. Okay, well, I grew up in the US of A outside of Washington, DC. I grew up mostly in Virginia, and I was always a voracious reader and writer. I wrote mostly short stories and poetry. And I've always thought of myself as an author. I always nursed a secret dream to be a novelist, but I think I got to high school and I was reading so many wonderful books. I had some really great teachers who gave me amazing books to read. And I started to get a little self-conscious and to worry about what if I'm actually not very, what if I try to write a novel and I'm not actually very good at it? This insecurity got more intense when I went to college and I was a, uh, a lit major writing and literature. And so again, was reading lots of great books. And I think I just got all tangled up about with my perfectionism. And I was worried that I wasn't going to be good enough to write the book that was in my head. So it wasn't until I left college, a couple of teachers of mine convinced me not to go to grad school and instead to go traveling, which was a great piece of advice, I have to say. I grabbed a backpack and I traveled solo across Europe, which, you know, to Australians who are listening, it's like, yeah, 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 most of us have done that. Whereas for me, as an Americans don't do it as much. And it felt like this massive leap into the unknown. But I had an amazing trip and I ended up in Australia. So I did go to grad school in the end, but it was in Australia. And that was the time at which I finally said, I think it's time to sit down and just give this a try. I was 24, 25, and I just wanted to see if I could do it. Could I actually write a novel beginning to end? So I did. And it was a, it will not surprise you to know, it was YA. It had magic in it, (laughs) had witches in it, uh, had mysteries and betrayals. And... I had just had a blast 
writing it. And as soon as I finished it, I was very proud of it, but I knew it was very much my training wheels novel. It was, it taught me how to write a book and I learned a lot and I did figure out that I indeed loved writing novels, but it wasn't going to be the one to get me published. So Mm. over the next decade, I had lots of jobs. I graduated grad school and my master's degree was in journalism. I ended up an editor, a nonfiction editor. I've done work for Australian publishers and for National Geographic, um, always in nonfiction because I didn't want to work all day on fiction and then be trying to write my own fiction at night. I thought that might burn me out. Mm. So I worked on amazing books about everything from climbing Mount Everest to, you know, making confetti earrings for yourself. It's very broad range. I'm filled with uh, factoids for any dinner party, always at the ready. And I worked as a high school teacher for several years, an English and creative writing teacher. And I was feeling very inspired to write, but I was exhausted too. It was, it was hard to write around the margins, but throughout all those years I was writing. So I think I wrote another three novels during that time and I could feel myself getting better. I could feel myself developing and really finding my voice on the page. And I don't think I started looking for an agent and turning my mind seriously towards publication until probably novel three. Nightbirds is novel number five. So (laughs) it was not a quick trip to the bookshelf, but um, I'm glad too that I didn't get published with my first or even my second or third novels because Nightbirds is really a story that it took me a long time to figure out how to tell. It was my first secondary world fantasy. Mm. Uh, all of my novels before that had been very much set in our world, but with a magical twist. And with this one, I went in a different direction and it just felt so right. It was a challenge. Every book is a challenge to write in its own special way. But there was something <laughs> about Nightbirds that it just felt like the one. It felt like I'd really hit my stride. Tell us about your fifth book that you finally got to, Nightbirds. What is the pitch? Ah, okay. So Nightbirds is a 1920s tinted fantasy. So you have a world where there is a prohibition, but it's not on booze, it's on magic. And in this world, there's a group of girls called Nightbirds who can gift you their rare type of magic with a kiss, which they will do for a price. But first you have to find them and their identities are their city's best kept secret. Their faces are hidden behind masks and they are guarded by the city's great houses. So -hmm. the idea with the Nightbirds is that they will, for a couple of years, they will gift their magic to members of these great houses in return for protection from the many, many people, including the church, who would wish them ill if they were discovered. And at the end of all of that, they will marry into one of these great houses and pass their magic on to the next generation. But these particular girls, when a political conspiracy threatens to unmask them and they have to go on the run, they start to realize that there was a lot about their magic that has been hidden from them. And they start to wonder if the Nightbird system is actually a gilded cage rather than protection. There's a lot in this book. There's a lot to unpack. And I feel like I should, I just kind of want to dive into it straight away before I want to talk about this world you've created and these characters you've created. But 
the themes in this book. This is a book about sisterhood, about feminism, about politics, and also a book about breaking down patriarchal um, systems, which I love. The allegories are, are bubbling just beneath the surface of this world, but I love that because... Thank you for noticing. I love it because I also think that we, right now, we live in a time that I don't think deserves subtlety. And we need art and storytelling that looks us directly in the eye unflinchingly and tells us to fix these problems. And I imagine book number five in terms of your journey, but you would have been, I just want to know the the space that you were in when you were incorporating all of this into your story. Because I imagine it would have been just such an interesting place with all the stuff that you had to say. Yes. You know, it's it's funny because sometimes you don't, I think as a writer, sometimes you don't quite know what you're writing until you're finished with it. So <laughs> when I initially had the idea for Nightbirds, I certainly wasn't thinking to myself, I want to write a book about everything that's wrong with patriarchy and how we <laughs> should dismantle it and build something better. I had the idea for Nightbirds when I was hiking up a mountain in Montana a very unlikely place to <laughs> come up with nightbirds. But I just had this image bloom in my head of a girl in an opulent room. She was wearing a mask and she was kissing someone who had paid for the privilege. And I knew that he was there to take something from her, some kind of magic, something coveted and illegal, something precious. But I also had the feeling that she was claiming power in that exchange as well. I was interested in how the system in which this girl was operating, it was clear to me that it was either protective and empowering or exploitative, depending on which way you turned, mm. you know, which way you turned the situation to the light. And I was really interested to find out that girl's story, what she was doing there, what she was gifting and what she was taking. So from there, I actually started writing Nightbirds in earnest the same year that I started my history podcast, The Explores, which is about time traveling through history to find out what life was like for women of the past. And I was reading so many stories about the many hurdles and frustrations that women throughout time have experienced in many different cultures, times and places. And I found myself particularly fascinated by stories of courtesans because I think it is a job that historically has given women a lot of power and influence sometimes in certain situations you know you had the ancient greek heteri they were women who had the ears of politicians and statesmen and philosophers they had more freedom more money more independence than any other woman in the ancient classical world and yet there are also it's also a a job and an occupation with a lot of dangers where people can be easily exploited and aren't always protected, right? Mm. So, and they're seen very much for what they can give to others rather than what they can do for themselves. And all of that was swirling around in my mind as I was writing this story about magical girls. And I was thinking a lot about my own experiences as a teenager, um, the frustrations I experienced of being judged based on how I looked and how I made other people feel, being talked down to, being belittled, being told mm. to smile more and be pleasant, and that it was essentially 
it's implied, I think, still for especially young women that they should be making other people feel comfortable and that mm. they have to smile and, you know, uh, that they have to put other people's needs before their own. I think there are just so many frustrations that I ended up, that I have experienced that ended up in the book. In chapter one, all three of our protagonists have an experience with a privileged rude mm. man yes. <laughs> that, that, I, that I or one of my friends have had exactly that same experience. And so as I was writing the book, I, all of that was swirling around in my mind. I knew I wanted a story that expressed those frustrations, but also a story about young women finding their own way in the world, pushing back against other people's expectations and mm. their needs and starting to ask, what if I stopped giving my power away to other people? And instead we started keeping it for ourselves. What could we do then? Mm. Just also the, the, your dichotomy of it. The Nightbirds are, are people with incredible power, but by also by extension, the world almost is an, is an objectification, treats them as an object. It's an objectification that is it gives you that that it, you can feel that rage that these characters mm. experience we'll we'll try and keep it as spoiler free as possible because short answer i want i want our listeners to go and read the book um but the three nightbirds that you you start the, the three nightbirds i'm gonna try i'm gonna i'm gonna butcher the names here but i'll try my best but matilde aisa and saya have i got it right in terms of no but you but you tried and i appreciate that yeah <laughs> Well, I, well I, that was in my that was in my head when I was reading it. But they're such <laughs> fascinating characters. They and it feels like the, this going into this ball. They're enjoying this last moment of freedom before they become they fall into this ob- objectification trap, bargaining chips in the world of powerful men. Mm. How the hell did these characters come to you? <laughs> That's a good question. Well, <laughs> Matilde came first. She is our privileged, uh, gilded, spoiled, rich girl. She is, I think she came to me first because she has bought into the Nightbird system hook, line, and sinker. She is a, a legacy Nightbird, so a Nightbird's magic passes through the blood from woman to woman through bloodlines. Her grandmother was a Nightbird, and she has been for a couple of seasons already, And she is someone who thinks the Nightbird system works. It keeps the girls protected. They're cherished. They're treasured. Matilde finds a thrill in giving her magic to other people and to see the kinds of things they can do with it. She doesn't see anything wrong with the system. It works (laughs) for everyone, supposedly. The one thing she has a bone to pick over is there is this pressure that at a certain point, a Nightbird will marry a suitor from the great houses. And while she does have some role in choosing who that will be, he's not choosing her, Matilde Denatris. Mm. He's choosing the goldfinch or her nightbird persona. So they're essentially paying for the privilege of buying her. She has some problems with that. And a lot of her, what kicks off the action for her in the beginning of the novel is her pushing back against that expectation and wanting to maintain her own freedom and live on her own terms. So she came to me first. Her voice was always very clear to me. And I knew that in choosing the other Nightbirds, I wanted girls who were going to be coming at the system from very different points of view. People who would challenge her and really make her question everything she thinks she knows. Mm -hmm. So next came Sayer. She is, uh, 
are a tough girl from the wrong side of the canals, essentially. So she had a mother who was a nightbird who fell from grace. She broke the rules of the system and was punished for it. So Sayer has grown up in, in the same city as Mathilde, but she's had such a different upbringing in a gritty part of town. She's friends with, you know, gang bosses and, and street urchins, and she's working for a living. But her mother has passed away and she finds herself having to make a choice. Do I mm. join the nightbird system as my mother really wanted me to, or do I try to just make ends meet as best I can? So she decides to enter the nightbird system, but she is someone who has feet in two worlds and she has a lot of anger towards the system that she thinks betrayed her mother. The system that's supposed to protect these girls didn't protect her mother. So she comes into the system, not wanting to make friends with Mathilde or <laughs> anyone wanting to pick these people's pockets for all they're worth and then get out and take her money with her. Mm. So she and Mathilde are often butting heads. And I loved that. I wanted a group of girls who start out the story. They are not friends. They have very little in common. Mm. But as the story unfolds, you see them really find the sisterhood that the Nightbird system promises. Mm. So our third Nightbird is Asa. And look, that is a name that on the page, who knows how to pronounce it. Her name is really a choose your own adventure, but in my head, it's Asa. She comes from the Illish Isles. So it's in my head, the Illish Isles are kind of like a, an even smaller and more rural version of Ireland. So we've mm. got this teeny windswept island on the far side of the Udean Republic. And she is just such a fish out of water. She's the newest nightbird. She's... She barely speaks the Simpton language. She feels totally overwhelmed by all of this newness. And she has a real sense of guilt about her magic. So mm. she was brought up by parents who were avid churchgoers. And the, yes. the official church of Judea preaches that magic is not just illegal. One of the reasons it's, it's illegal is because magic is, what am I trying to say? Blasphemous. Yes. It's magic is holy. So magic itself is holy, right? And it's something that isn't meant to be touched by human hands. And those who use magic are actually corrupting it and it corrupts them. These are the beliefs that she was brought up with. And so she has this real sense of guilt and concern about what is this magic going to do to me? And what happens if I give it to other people? Am I corrupting their souls? Mm. So that's something that Matilda and Sarah don't think about it all, but Asa brings that to the table and forces them all to grapple with the morality of their magic. So these are three girls who are very different, who push and challenge each other. But I love a story where you've got people who can barely be in the same room together, really, without getting into an argument. And then as the story goes on, you see these connections grow and they really become sisters. They find mm. family and support and power in each other. I wanted a story not about girls competing, but about the strength of female friendship and what happens, the kind of strength you can claim through friendship and, and found family. And the fact that you've picked you've, these girls, you could, I could tell you really put where they're coming from. Each one comes from a different perspective on this, not just on this system, but their own backgrounds and where they come from. It's, I love the way that that intertwines in that relationship and the way that the different backgrounds often affect how they react in certain situations in certain ways. I, I honestly could talk to you about these characters and also how they grapple with all of the stuff that goes on as the, as the story unfolds, uh, for lack of spoilers. But I also want to ask a little bit about this world 
um, that you have crafted and created? Because, of course, you know, there is the political intrigue and examinations of, of uh, patriarchal systems. But also what I love that you've done is you've walked a tightrope. It isn't done in the sacrifice. It, like there's a good story at the core of it that allows these uh, themes to come out so well. This wider world that you created is really vividly brought to life here. The magic, the word I kind of felt and described was just it was full it was lush it was filled with color on the page and i how was it like just imagining first of all this this wider world on the page because it feels it feels like you had a lot of fun you had a lot of fun oh, watching this world <laughs> i surely did i surely <laughs> did i love world building in my reading and so it's always just the highest compliment to hear someone say that they loved my world and it felt rich and immersive because that is what I wanted. I want read I, I want readers to really fall into the world of the nightbirds and not want to leave. That's how I felt writing it. Mm. So in crafting this world, I started with the girls. I started with the nightbird system and I really built out from there. So a couple of months after I had the initial idea for nightbirds, I went to a show in New York City called Sleep No More. And it's this amazing piece of immersive theater. Everyone's wearing masks. No one can talk. And there isn't a stage and players and an audience. It's all happening in one building. You're walking from room to room. You're touching things. You're, you know, and the actors are essentially doing their thing around you. They're interacting with the audience. So I was having a great time. And at the end of the night, you essentially are let out into this, what feels exactly like I imagine a 1920s speakeasy <laughs> would feel like. You've got a jazz musician, you've got absinthe cocktails, you've got people in full period dress. It's just fantastic and enchanting. And I was standing there drinking my cocktail, thinking about my magical girl. And I thought, what if there was a prohibition on magic in the world in which she is giving these kisses, this magic away. What does that look like? What kinds of magic are there in this world? And what does it look like on the ground? Legally, socially, what does this world feel like? So mm. I really started to think more about the 1920s as inspiration yeah. and specifically America's prohibition. And so when I was drafting the book, I'd, I'd say I got probably 20,000 words in and I had to stop and do some research because I felt like I just need to understand how the church, the government, the whole political system works together and also what this law looks like on the ground. So I started watching documentaries about prohibition and it really opened up this whole new world of possibilities and helped me build the framework for this world. So I took tons of notes about what was prohibition like? How did it impact people from you know, the government all the way down to what was it like on the ground? Who was making booze? What happened if you got caught? What were the ins and outs? What were all of the ripple effects this had? Mm. And then I went through my notes, I scratched out the word alcohol, and I replaced it with magic. <laughs> and I looked through it all and said, okay, what does this look like? What am I going to take? What am I going to leave? The wonderful thing about writing fantasy and not historical fiction is uh, I got to pick and choose what made sense <laughs> for my world. And so that helped me to develop the system within the girls are living and working, but also the rest of the magical system. So in my world, there are two types of magic. There's intrinsic, which is what the nightbirds have that passes through the blood. 
And then there's alchemical. So these are potions that can be brewed up by human hands, by people who know what they're doing to make medicines and salves. It's, it's all stuff that comes from the earth. So the two types of magic are related, but they express themselves very differently. And that allowed me to play with this idea of illicit cocktails and magical speakeasies and all just all sorts. I, I had the best time in the world coming up with all of the illegal concoctions someone <laughs> might keep hidden in, you know, the, a false bottom boat or in the side of their boot. So you have a lot of parallels there to 1920s prohibition with this added element of girls who have intrinsic magic that is related but different. So yeah, I think thinking about history, I'm always turning to history for inspiration. I pulled from the Renaissance, I pulled from the 1920s. Um, for the political system, I pulled a little bit from ancient Rome and the Republic system. I knew I didn't mm. want a traditional, there's a queen monarchy system. I wanted something a little bit more nuanced than that. So I pulled from a lot of different places and then asked myself, what I want this to be a world that is enchanting, that people want to spend time in, but also one that feels a little bit dangerous and gritty. When I was a high school teacher, I used to teach The Great Gatsby. And one of the things I loved about teaching that book was there is so much glamour in it, but there's always this feeling that if you peeked behind the glittery curtain, mm -hmm. there's what's what's back there. You yes, know? what's back there? What, what's back there in the shadows and i wanted mm. this book in in a small way to be an answer to that question what is back there what happens when you make a commodity like magic illegal not just to the girls who have it but to people on the ground it let me also talk about a world where we see a lot of privileged people who when they break the law they get a slap on the wrist and people with less privilege are often the ones who are the most exposed and who are punished the most severely for breaking the law. Yeah, I just kept adding on and adding on and thinking about what are all the little details that are going to make this world feel real to my readers. There are a lot of secret clubs because I love a secret club. Um, there are gangster dens, there are opulent parties. It's all in there. <laughs> I love how you've grounded this what this world in real history and I think um Margaret Atwood has an amazing quote when she was talking about writing The Handmaid's Tale and her story of creating that book and people saying to her well you certainly have an evil imagination you made up all of these horrific terrible things and her response is I didn't make them up it, it makes it brings all of the again the other things that themes and topics that we've mentioned earlier home because it feels real it's grounded in actual history, which I, I love that this was the creative process that you went down. I want to ask you a little bit about your actual journey to publication because mm -hmm. uh, a little bit more, I want to delve into that a bit more because you, 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 you had five books, you wrote all of, you kind of went through that process and this was the, the book that you finally realized, okay, this is the one that I'm going to try and take. What happened then? Where, what, where did you go? How did you, how did it end up on the table on the hand, in the hands of Alan? Mm. Okay. Well, so I got my agent, my lovely agent, Josh Adams with book number four, mm. which was a very different book to Nightbirds, but I had spent a long time on it. was very passionate about it. And we sent it out to editors. I always, th I had this impression that once you get an agent, you're in. It means all your books are being published, right? Yes, you're laughing and looking at me I'm like, sorry. oh, honey, I'm I know. Sorry. 
so yes, I thought, okay, I'm in the door. This book is getting published. Someone will publish it. I'm, I'm there. I'm ready. I'm ready to be famous. Got my sunglasses on. It did not sell. And I was devastated. And I thought, okay, so I, I have an agent. I'm in the door, but it doesn't mean that everything I write is going to end up in readers' hands. And that was a lesson that I had to learn. And I'm glad I learned it. Luckily, I was already working on Nightbirds. And when we sent out book number four, we'd sent the first couple of chapters of Nightbirds to editors. And we got a lot of really great feedback from them saying, this particular book isn't for me, but that Nightbirds, when you're done with that, send me that because that looks great. And mm. it seemed to, even though it was only a couple of chapters, there was something about the book that seemed to be striking a chord. So that gave me the confidence to keep going and to get it ready to send out. So when we sent it out, I think that was at the beginning of 2021, my agent started sending it to editors. And it took a couple of weeks. We'd gotten, as you do, often it's the no's that come in the swift, the most swiftly, right? So we'd gotten a couple of no's, but I was feeling quietly confident. I just really felt like this is the one. It's happening. It's going to happen. I just need someone to fall in love with it. And as an editor myself, I have always just cherished the connections over books that I have made with authors. And something I was really looking forward to was finding an editor who understood what I was trying to do and who wanted to help me do it to its, its you know, to make it its shiniest, to make it its best, someone who would really push me. Editors are magical creatures. Yes, who, they are. Mm. right when you find one who really gets your writing and gets your story and gets you it's such an incredibly i mean it's just there's nothing better mm. so i was very lucky in that i living in australia with american publishing there's always that funny time difference where their afternoon evening is our morning and so i woke up in the morning took the dog for a walk and just had this feeling like I should check my email. I opened my email. There's just a stream of panicked emails from my agent saying, please. And he had started texting me, please check your email. And I opened this email and I had an offer from my incredible editor at Penguin, Stacey Barney. And she just fell in love with the book and wanted to, it just had such beautiful things to say about it. And she did what's called a preempt. So essentially that's when an editor loves a book so much that they slap a deal down fast, hoping to knock out the competition because they don't want anyone else to have the book. They want it and they mm. want it now. Mm -hmm. So it all happened really quickly. And I jumped on the phone with Stacy and we had a chat to see if we were a good match. And she, I could just tell right away, she was the right editor for me. And she loved the book and had a vision for how to make it its best self. And I hung up the phone just buzzing and sweaty and <laughs> excited, nervous. Um, and within the course of 24 hours, we had a deal. So then, yeah, it was about two years, I think, from deal to publication and lots of back and forth. I think I got like a 12 page editorial letter from Stacy, which was overwhelming, but just incredible. It set my brain on fire and helped me make Nightbirds into what it what it is now. So it's been an incredible journey. And I've just loved working with an editor who gets me and who a team who are excited about the kind of work I want to do. You've kind of already answered my next question, because I always like to try and encourage, uh, you know, first time writers who are listening to this podcast to know, invest the time in an editor, because mm -hmm. the editor is the person who is effectively your your first reader. They are your barrica. They are the person who 
who uh, is in your corner in terms of trying to craft, trim the fat, be prepared to tell you to kill your darlings, uh, be the honest Mm -hmm. person that you connect with. And I've, you know, my own writing experience, I didn't really actually come to think my book was complete until the editor showed up at the, at the previous time, it was just a splodge on a page. And I was like, I don't know what this is, where this is going to go, but I uh, imagine it would have been particularly unique for you because you have, you come from that editorial background. Did that make it easier? Did that make it harder? Because you kind of were like, well, I trust my own instincts and my feelings and how to edit this. Or was it just the same experience that you would have had when you were dealing with nonfiction authors? My answer is yes and no. I did think (laughs) that being an editor for so long would prepare me. I think it prepared me for, as an author, you know, it it felt like I climbed over to the other side of the desk, but I knew what it was like to be an editor. I know how hard the work is. I know how taxing it can be. I know what editors are expected to do, and I really respect it and value it. So Mm -hmm. I think it helped me all along the way to make sure that my team knew how much I, I saw them and appreciated the hard work that was going into my book. But I also think there were tons of things as an author I wasn't prepared for. I don't know I was fully prepared for a 12-page editorial letter. <laughs> that that took a few days to work through. Uh, my feelings, I had all the feelings about that. But I think because I, I value editorial critique and feedback so much, and I knew that everything she was doing was to make the book a better book and to be a champion for my work. I think that's what you always have to remember about editors is that they are there they are invested and they want your book to be great and they want you to love it. They want the world to love it. Mm. So yeah, I don't know that I was as prepared for how personal it would feel, right? Yep. It, when it's your, when it's your book, um, it just, everything feels so much more personal. Everything from praise to critique feels like it's not just about the book, but it's about you. So yeah, I also think I will say because It did take me five books to get published. It took me over a decade of seriously pursuing publication to get there. And a part of me is glad it took that long because it taught me how to take critique, the importance of critique in sharing your work with editors, but also trusted friends and fellow writers and how to take that feedback on and use it to make your writing better. So in that way, I think I was, I was prepared. I just wasn't prepared for how personal it was all going to (laughs) feel. What is next for you? Nightbird sequel is next. Yes, it is. (laughs) Waist deep in revisions for Firebirds, it's called. Um, And I'm so excited to get to stay in this world and continue their journey. I'm so excited for readers to find out what happens to the Nightbirds and the kind of incredible feats they are able to to perform and just everything that's coming for them. I'm I'm thrilled that I get to do two books in this world. So yeah, that's what I'm working on now. We're now at the part of the podcast date where we go to a rapid fire questions. You uh, yes, so I'm going to throw questions at you. Give me the first responses that come to your head no pressure okay what's your favorite book that you've read in the last 12 months <laughs> it's gonna be hard um i'm gonna say the isles of the gods by amy kaufman oh she's great she's she so is great. it hasn't come out yet it's coming out in a couple of weeks so i was lucky i got to read it early but it's an it's amazing 
I've had the pleasure of chatting with her so many times. She is just unbelievable. Like, I, I see, mm-hmm. I see personal author aspirations and goals, and I see Amy. She's just so good. She is delightful. She's a good friend and mentor. And she and I actually have a podcast called Pub Dates that, for the last year, we're essentially taking readers behind the scenes on the publication of the Isles of the Gods and Nightbirds. So, if you do pick up Nightbirds, you might want to go and get a peek behind the curtain. Listeners, we'll include a link to that in the description so you can go and check that out. Do you have a favorite word? Akimbo. Oh, that's a great word. (laughs) I try to work it into every single novel. Just the what? Because why not? Yeah, that's great. (laughs) I love that. Where's your favorite place to read? In bed, on the couch, or out the back in the shade on a sunny afternoon? Out the back for sure. I love being Mm. outside as much as I can. Favorite trope? Only one bed. Only <laughs> a very specific romance. Trip. Yes. Only one bed. <laughs> Do you have a favorite beverage that you like to read with? Well, I prefer a cocktail. It depends on the time of day, I suppose. <laughs> I love to read with a cocktail if it's in the evening, and I love to read with a coffee if it's the morning. What's the best debut that you have ever read? Ever? Ever. So we I'm talking like contemporary or it could be a classic what is the best debut book that you've ever read i'm going to say captive prince by c.s picot i've read the series twice i will read it many more times she is i mean the fact that that was her first novel absolutely blows me away Mm. she is a master and then lastly you hop into a lift and your your absolute hero is in there who is it (laughs) this is a difficult question my mind immediately goes to someone historical who's not actually alive now oh you can say that you can have them in there anyone could be fictional if you want oh wow this is just a world of possibilities okay the first (laughs) one that came to mind so that's what i'm gonna go with is uh cleopatra love it you've got time for one question what is it to ask her if you woke up tomorrow and you had a tail what kind of tail would it be that's a great it's my it's my favorite icebreaker question i was gonna i was gonna tail would what kind of tail would you have nick i would i don't know that's a great one like i do like a nice lion's tail like Mm. it's like i don't know there's something about the lion's tail that just feels balanced and calm and and part of 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 who i am and and relaxed but there's so many great tails you can work with because there's a monkey's tail that enables you to like hang from a tree suddenly you've got Mm -hmm. me thinking about it now I would have asked. I would have asked Cleopatra what floor you're going to. <laughs> uh, I could honestly chat to you all day, uh, but I am aware that you are incredibly busy. You are have many. You've got much to work on. You've got a, a sequel to write. So I'll simply finish by saying to all of our listeners, go and get Nightbirds. It's published by Alan Unwin. And if you like the show, drop words in as a review. Let us know what you think and who you'd like to hear from next. Kate, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. It's been a delight.